Hi everyone, welcome back to the final episode on my series on the book of Genesis. We are returning to the story of Joseph. The favorite son of Jacob is currently sitting at the pinnacle of Egyptian power as the top lieutenant to Pharaoh. He's running the country and in charge of grain, the food supplies for a region undergoing famine. But what he doesn't know is that Jacob has dispatched 10 of Joseph's brothers to Egypt to look for grain, and Joseph is about to face some choices about how to deal with them. The first part of the story of Joseph had three main lessons. The pitfalls of parental favoritism, the unintended consequences of our actions, and the very Jewish idea that our lives are cyclical. Today's story is about another core Jewish value, justice, as it intersects with forgiveness. You might expect, thanks to Hollywood, that Joseph would use his power to engineer an act of revenge for what his brothers did to him. But he doesn't. He engineers an elaborate plot of reconciliation instead. In doing so, he unites the Israelite people, and he also unwittingly sets the stage for our enslavement. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can give everyone our share to redeem the world. So here is Joseph, the top official of Pharaoh, ruling from a palace in Egypt, when, one day, in walks ten of his brothers. Half-brothers, technically. He has not seen them since they tossed him in a pit and sold him into slavery over a decade ago. And he instantly recognizes them. But they don't recognize him. And he doesn't give it away by speaking to them in Hebrew. Instead, what begins in his mind is the outline of a plot. It's unclear at first which direction this plot is going, but it would seem to point towards revenge, because Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. We're not spies, they say. We used to be twelve brothers. The youngest one stayed at home with our father, and the other one is no more. The youngest one refers to Benjamin, the other son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and therefore the only one who is Joseph's full brother. Joseph throws them in prison but then releases them after three days with instructions to go home to Canaan and bring back this younger brother, Benjamin. Why he released them is a little unclear. The rabbis would later interpret this action as coming from Joseph's sense of justice. If he kept his brothers imprisoned, his father Jacob would suffer more emotional turmoil, and the people of Canaan wouldn't get the grain they needed to survive. But Joseph apparently isn't the only one plagued by guilt. The brothers, too, for no real reason, connect their situation to the wrong they had done to Joseph many years before. We are being punished because we ignored him when he begged us to save him, the brothers say to each other in Hebrew. Now comes a reckoning for his blood. Joseph, of course, understands what is being said, and he turns away from his brothers and cries. He ends up taking the brother Simeon as a hostage and sends the other nine back to Canaan with instructions to bring Benjamin to Egypt. When they explain the situation to Jacob back in Canaan, Jacob refuses at first to allow Benjamin to leave. With his older brother Joseph dead, or anything to happen to Benjamin, Jacob fears that he wouldn't be strong enough to survive the loss of his favorite wife's two sons. But the famine is so bad that Jacob has no choice but to send his sons on a second journey to Egypt, this time with Benjamin and a load of gifts for this mysterious Egyptian official who seems to be very interested in the fate of Jacob's family. This is a really suspenseful moment in the story of Joseph. It seems likely that the brothers are going to suffer a terrible fate, for Joseph is clearly testing them. They threw him in a pit, so he threw them in jail. They claim that he had died, so he holds a brother as a hostage, with the intention to kill him if the brothers don't return with Benjamin. 
but they don't know why he wants to meet their younger brother. Perhaps he's trying to get all the brothers in one place at the same time in order to kill them. And this is what they and Jacob think is likely to happen. But Joseph notices that his brothers have changed. On this second journey to Egypt and their second encounter with each other, Joseph continues testing the brothers and finds them passing with flying colors. When presented with Benjamin, Joseph again has to remove himself from the room to go cry alone. It is the first time he has seen his younger brother in over 10 years. He orders a large feast prepared for the brothers and has them sit in the order of oldest to youngest. The brothers are shocked that this Egyptian official knows their order of seniority. And while all the brothers are served with a meal, Benjamin receives the largest portions. Joseph is subtly replicating the favoritism that Jacob showed him, and for which the brothers had then acted with murderous revenge. But in this case, they say nothing. They don't hold it against Benjamin. Now, maybe it's because they were really scared that this was going to be their last meal. But maybe it's also because in the last decade, they, like Joseph, have matured. The plot thickens. Joseph, ever more complex in his machinations, arranges for the brothers to get packed to go back home to Canaan. But he has his servant secretly place a silver goblet in Benjamin's things. As the brothers leave town, the servant chases them down, searches Benjamin's belongings, accuses him of theft, and insists he return as Joseph's slave. A final test is underway. Will the brothers once again sell a younger brother into slavery in Egypt? Standing before Joseph, his half-brother Judah refuses to relinquish Benjamin. Look, says Judah, we can't go back without Benjamin. Our father is old, and Benjamin's full brother Joseph is dead, so Benjamin is the only thing left of our father's wife. Our father said that if anything were to happen to Benjamin, he would die, so we cannot go back without him. So please, begs Judah, let Benjamin go, and I will stay here as your slave. Joseph, says the Torah, could no longer control himself. So impressed by Judah's willingness to become a slave in order to save Jacob's life and to spare Benjamin's suffering, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. You sold me into slavery, he says, but don't be distressed. It was God's will. I was enslaved so that someday I would be in a position to save your lives during the famine. You didn't send me to Egypt, and you didn't make me the ruler of Egypt. God did. Now this is a very Jewish thing to say. Jewish tradition frowns on acts of revenge, even against those who clearly wronged us. From King David to the great philosopher Maimonides, all caution against taking revenge. A Talmudic scholar of the 13th century, Rabbi Aharon Halevi, said that a person should know in their heart that all that happens, whether good or bad, is because of God. The person who wronged you isn't at fault. It was part of God's plan. This all sounds a lot like Joseph's philosophy too, and by this philosophy, by refusing to take revenge, Joseph reunited the Israelites, giving himself over to a much higher purpose. So Joseph sends his brothers racing home to Canaan to get Jacob and the rest of their families, promising that in Egypt they will not starve for the remaining five years of the famine, and they'll get the best land. Despite not taking revenge, he couldn't quite bring himself to let it all go. He ordered his brothers at the last second not to be quarrelsome on the way home, which sounds similar in tone to when my mom tells me to watch out for other drivers, as if I haven't already learned my lesson. All things flow from the Torah. Jacob, of course, is overcome with joy. The Torah says that his heart goes numb, for at first he does not believe them. But, says the Torah, Israel sets out with all that was his. Genesis at this point lists everyone that went, some 70 people in total. 
Jacob stops at Beersheba to offer sacrifices to God, and here something important happens. God makes an interesting promise. God tells Jacob not to be afraid to go to Egypt, that God will make unto Jacob a great nation, and crucially, that God will go down to Egypt with him and will also bring him back, and that Joseph will be the one to close Jacob's eyes upon his death. What is interesting and sad about this promise is that while it was made by God to Jacob, the inference is that God is including all the Israelites. And yet there will be 400 years of slavery in between God going with the Israelites to Egypt and God bringing them back out by the hand of Moses. The Israelites would spend those 400 years crying out for God's presence to free them, only to be greeted with silence and, they thought, abandonment. But not yet. Jacob's family makes their third trip to Egypt from Canaan. The Israelites settle in the region of Goshen. Now, nobody knows exactly where Goshen was, but it was probably located along the eastern bank of the Nile River, in between Cairo and the Sinai Peninsula today. There, Joseph comes out to greet his father. So overcome with emotion, Jacob declares that having now seen Joseph alive, he is prepared for his own death. Now, at some point, Jacob meets Pharaoh. I would love to have been there. What a cool meeting that must have been. Two iconic figures of ancient history brought together by Joseph for a quick meet and greet. The total of one paragraph in the Torah. Mostly they discussed Jacob's age, which at that point was 130. The Israelites settled down as shepherds in the land of Goshen, supplied with grain by Joseph, and, as the Jewish people tend to do everywhere, prosper and multiply. 17 years pass and Jacob, at the age of 147, finds that it is his time to die. He summons Joseph and makes him promise not to bury him in Egypt, but to return his body to Isaac and Abraham in Canaan. He tells Joseph of his covenant with God, that Jacob will father a great nation and a community of people who will live in the land of Canaan forever. You'll note that at no point does God appear to Joseph to relay the covenant directly to him. It just comes through Jacob. Also remember that Joseph, while in Egypt, was given an Egyptian wife by the Pharaoh and had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim neither of whom is technically an Israelite. But on his deathbed, Jacob brings him into the fold with a blessing. And you faithful listeners will at this point not be at all surprised to hear that yet again the younger shall receive a higher blessing than the older. Manasseh, the oldest, says Jacob, will become a people, but his younger brother Ephraim will be even greater than him, and he will have enough offspring for many nations. Jacob offers them a blessing. It's a very famous blessing. The God in whose ways my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd from my birth to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless these boys. In them may my name be recalled, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they be teeming multitudes upon the earth. With this wonderfully poetic blessing, Jacob brings Manasseh and Ephraim into the Israelite family for all time. They are now a part of who would become the Jewish people. Jacob's blessing is so powerful that to this day on Shabbat, it's traditional for the father to bless his sons as Manasseh and Ephraim. The Torah records Jacob's blessings for each of his 12 sons, which is suggested, or we can picture, they're gathered around his bedside. We could do an entire podcast episode just on these 12 blessings. They are rich in imagery, poetry, narrative, and cryptic phrases that scholars have spent centuries trying to understand. Actually, that would be a fun podcast. Maybe we'll do that 
another time. Anyway, the overall point is that we have around Jacob's deathbed now the people who will become the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes around which the Israelites will be organized and into which they will eventually merge into one tribe, the Judah ends or the Jews. These are the many nations to which God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob now says his final goodbyes in the hope that these nations will endure. What if God had told Abraham, Lech Lecha, go forth, and Abraham hadn't left his home in Babylon? What if Sarah hadn't been able to finally give birth to Isaac? Or what if Abraham had actually sacrificed him? What if Isaac hadn't survived his own life struggles, or didn't marry Rebekah? What if Jacob never stole the birthright, or what if Esau had killed him instead of embracing him? What if Jacob had lost his wrestling match with the strange being and was never named Israel? What if Joseph had taken revenge on his brothers instead of engineering an elaborate plot of reconciliation? I think that the idea of fragility and fate and worrying about the abandonment of God, but also the hope and the promise of the covenant, these are all intrinsic to the Jewish experience. These patriarchs and matriarchs whom we today revere, from their perspective, the idea of the covenant was a fragile one, very fragile. One misstep and it all could have fallen apart. Yet each of them, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, they all did their part to shepherd the Hebrew nation forward. This is the story that I've been telling for the past few months, or I hope it's the story that I've been telling for the past few months. And now, as Jacob breathes his last and the book of Genesis comes to a close, he looks around his bed and sees the many nations standing before him. Twelve sons and twelve families, united as a people. Jacob repeats his final instructions to bury him in Canaan, and the Torah records that he drew his feet into the bed, and breathing his last, he was gathered to his people. Joseph has his body embalmed over a period of 40 days, and all of Egypt mourns Jacob's death for 70 days. Pharaoh sends with Joseph and his brothers, Egypt's top officials, senior diplomats, chariots, and soldiers, and they all march back across the desert to Canaan. Jacob is laid to rest in the cave of Machpelah, in the city of Hebron, which Abraham purchased as a tomb for Sarah. And so passes the era of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, who left their mark on history, set forth a new path for humanity, and nearly 3,500 years later are still visited by their descendants in the place where they came to rest. Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt, and we fast forward to Joseph's deathbed. Joseph says to his brothers that God will take notice of them and will bring them to the land which was promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when that time comes, Joseph instructs that his bones should be carried up as well. And so the book of Genesis concludes, Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. The book of Genesis starts with Bereshit, in the beginning, creation, and ends with the word Mitzrayim, Egypt. It has taken 20 episodes and about six months for us to work our way through the roughly 1,500 years or so that Genesis covers. I feel like I learned a lot. I don't even want to think about the stories I left out. We'll have to save that for another time. But here we have it, the origin stories of the Jewish people. The men and women and God who set forth our narrative 
and from whom we still today derive many of our values. We've come to understand the covenant, this agreement between humanity and God, that we will accept God, and God, in turn, will ensure us a nation and a land in which to forever dwell. We've come to see how Abraham's journey to Canaan landed us in the promised land in the first place, and how his desire for a burial place for his beloved wife Sarah gave us a permanent home. We know that many of our ideas about social justice come from these stories, of Noah saving humanity from the flood, of Abraham seeking out the good people in Sodom and Gomorrah, of Rebekah's kindness towards strangers, of Joseph's insistence on a just reconciliation rather than revenge. We got the name Israel and know that it means to wrestle or to struggle, often with a being or a purpose we don't fully understand. And we know how the Israelites ended up in Egypt, primed to spend the next 400 years in slavery. So you may think that this will lead us naturally to the next book of the Torah, Exodus, the story of slavery and Moses and Mount Sinai and returning to the promised land and all that stuff. But I'm going to take things in a different direction. We're going to leave the world of the Torah for a bit and instead dive into modern Israeli history. At least I hope so. I promise at the beginning of this podcast that I would jump around to various topics, since to start from the beginning of Jewish history and go through to the contemporary era would mean that we would never actually get there or get here. So next time, we're going to start in the late 1800s, talking about modern Israel. And if you have stuck with me this whole time, you know a whole lot of things. Why we ended up in the promised land, why we have land there, where the name Israel comes from. So I hope that you're enjoying Jew I Don't Know and that you'll stick around. I think we're having fun. I'm having fun. Hopefully. Talk to you next time. Bye.